0: Well as I said we're coming to the end of our series on the book of Job today and we began our series eight weeks ago thinking about what is this book actually about and this whole book of the Bible and I just said that it was really about what we call the problem of suffering. Now as many of us know this particular problem is probably the most difficult intellectual problem or question that Christians face or anyone who believes uh, in a God of love and it It asks us, you know, how can we believe in God and the love and the power of God when there is so much suffering in the world? Um, And what answer could anyone give to this question that could actually satisfy us given the depth of the problem that we face? Um, And this is the question I think that's behind the book of Job that we've been looking at. So the people of Israel in the Old Testament times, they knew, of course, that this was a problem for the people of God and they wanted to face it. As well and so the book of Job, I believe was written to explore this problem and Job, as we've seen is a wisdom book in the Old Testament, what they call wisdom book, a kind of book that reflects on life as we experience it and sees if what we experience in life we can make sense of it in the light of our faith in God. Um, and so the story of job that we read through in this book it's a long book it, it's a dramatic representation I think of the problem of suffering in a vivid and clear form for us, in the form of a story that engages us. So we've seen right at the beginning that in the setup to this story, we see Job is set up, he's the greatest man in the world. Uh, He's the richest man, the wisest man, the most generous and the most noble. He's a man who worships God faithfully, he cares for his family. And then again in the introduction we hear that there's, there's this event, that God actually allows Satan to test Job. Um, Job will have everything taken away from him in a single day, and he'll have nothing left. And the question in this is, will he still believe and have faith in God? And how is he going to persevere through this time of suffering? That's the setup to the story. And the question is, what does this say about the problem of suffering? How does this help us to engage with it more deeply? And so each week then, as we've gone through this book, we've seen some of the different facets of the problem of suffering as Christians and how we can experience this problem when we suffer and work through it. So it's a heavy book, isn't it? Very deep, causes us to think about deep things. And when it is raining, it can feel gloomy. But it's an important topic for us to get to to grips with, isn't it? How can we bring suffering into our relationship with God in an authentic way and deal with it? So we were reminded as we went through that there's a common practice in the Bible called lamenting which you might be familiar with where people we read bring their pain and their anger to god and share it with him openly this is done constantly throughout the bible that people being honest and authentic with god about what they're feeling in the midst of suffering not avoiding it not putting it aside but acknowledging that it's there What it is, and this is how Job we read. He responds to his fortune, misfortune, lamenting to God, and we saw how. Well, this is what allows us to start to be open uh, to receive the healing and the grace of God when it comes, and to be with Him in in the in our suffering. And we've also seen then for a few weeks how Job and his friends argued about possible answers to the problem of suffering, intellectual answers, particularly whether or not it's true that we suffer because God is punishing us for our sins. And Job doesn't accept that idea and his friends throughout these arguments are not really able to satisfy him or provide him with any comfort or meaning in arguing in this way. also thought a few weeks ago about how in suffering we can enter into kind of depths of the complaint that we bring to God about the suffering that he's allowed into our lives. Uh, And how it can lead us, like Job, to question seriously and to wrestle with the question of whether God is good at all. And we've seen that this, this challenge and this complaint can force us to challenge the tendency we have to hide within belief systems about God and about the world. And instead actually venture out into seeking a real personal connection with God and get the kind of answer that will actually satisfy us in this experience of suffering. And finally last week we remembered that um, all of us though, however innocent we might be as Job is and how, we are, how much we might suffer, uh, we still need to remember we have our own weaknesses, we have our own failures and we're actually part of the problem of suffering in the world. Uh, and so we're implicated in it as well. So that's a lot of very deep stuff packed into the book of Job, isn't it? You know, and there's so much more that we haven't looked at. But each week we've tried also to turn our attention as well to Jesus because He takes up in the New Testament this experience of Job as being a sufferer, an innocent sufferer. Um, But he offers a new perspective on suffering in the cross. So this is our kind of theme and how we work through Job so far. Uh, But I think it's fair to say so far we haven't actually given or tried to give an answer to the problem of suffering in this series. And I know that a number of people were a little disappointed a few weeks ago when I said I wasn't going to do it that week. Um, So today perhaps we'll give it a go. Um, Today we arrive at the climax really of the book of Job. Um, and after laying out his case before God, we heard, and endlessly arguing with his friends, Job sits back now. And he's just waiting for a response from God, and God answers him. So this is it. This is what you've been waiting for. Heaven opens. A voice thunders out with answers to the questions Job's been asking. So what does Job say? Uh, God say. Let's have a, th- have a think about that. Uh, Well, God has some surprises in store for Job in his conversation with him. And what he says is probably not what we'd expect to hear. In fact, I think God's response is quite puzzling to us when we first read the book. Uh, And I think it's it's true that a lot of people, to be honest, have found God to be quite an unsympathetic character in the book of Job. Um, And it's understandable. You know, first he sets up Job in this test of faith and he allows him to go through the suffering which we think it seems quite unfair. And then when he comes to answer to Job, he doesn't actually apologise at all for setting this up, issue up. And in fact, he doesn't even seem very interested in answering the questions that Job asks. So, you know, it's not really like, well, this is what we've been waiting to hear. But what is, does he say? Well, to summarise, I think what God says in chapters 38 to 41, God's answer to Job is to tell him, actually, that he has no right to ask God about what's going on. Because Job has no idea what he's talking about. And in fact, God says it's him who has some questions for Job. And so his answers to Job are actually just many, many series of questions. So this is how he begins. We saw in our reading. It says, The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, and he said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. And so God goes on in chapters. 38 to 41 and he has two main points that we can see and they're repeated again and again with many poetic images and to stretch them out and bring them alive Um, but there are two points and it's sort of summarized in this verse up here um, in the next slide there which is from verse 33 of um, chapter 38 do you know the laws of the heavens can you set up God's dominion over the earth so firstly God reminds Job that the universe that he lives in is full of wonders that are unknown or incomprehensible to him so he says job's actual knowledge of the secrets and mysteries of nature and the depths of the wisdom of god as creator is infinitesim and so god says it's impudent for Job to presume to question god about anything as though he understands enough to make a judgment about the world So God questions Job in particular about two sort of areas of scientific knowledge in which Job is quite ignorant. So he asks him first, you know, if he knows all about all the secrets of time and space, you know, where does the universe come from? How big is it? Was Job around when the earth was formed and shaped? Has he been down to the depths of the sea? Has he gone to the ends of the earth? Does he know where water comes from? Can he explain the movements of the stars? And the answer is no to all of those questions. And he also points out that Job is ignorant of the mysteries of the living things that he sees around him. He says he doesn't know the processes of birth, how animals are formed and made. He doesn't know how to predict or tame their behaviour. He he can't give the animal its strength or its ability to fly. He can only watch them in awe. And so the question's left hanging. Job never says, no, I don't. But the implication is that until Job understands all the secrets of the universe, until he has the wisdom and the knowledge of God, He is not capable of asking questions about ultimate meaning, like the problem of suffering. And perhaps he's not capable of understanding the answer if he were to hear it. So that's God's first kind of set of answer and set of questions for Job, which is a point about Job's knowledge of the world. And the second point he makes is a point about power. So God points out to Job that he's a very weak person, without power to contend with the forces of the universe and to make any contribution to running the world. Uh, the universe, God says, is permeated by all these forces, forces of chaos, forces of life, and it takes unfathomable power and glory to restrain them, to overcome them, and to, to allow the world to be what it should be, a good and orderly place. And that's power that Job doesn't have. And God gives two examples of mighty creatures that are untamable. He talks about, he calls them the behemoth and the leviathan. Uh, so that the behemoth is a mighty land animal, something like we'd see an elephant, or a rhinoceros or something like that, but kind of on steroids, you know, like real big. Um, and the leviathan is a giant, something like a giant crocodile or a sea serpent, you know, the kind of nightmare you have when you're out, of, out in a boat, you know. Um, so these are images of the forces of the world, chaos, power beyond our control, in the earth and on the ocean. And so Job, God us, Job, have you ever contended with these creatures? Can you tame them and bring them in? No. And until Job has and he understands perhaps what it takes to keep the universe running, does he have the right to question the goodness and justice of God? So God's answer, we read, in summary to Job's question, to Job's suffering is to say two things to him. You don't understand the mysteries of the world and you don't have the power to run it. Now, Job is actually, after all his questioning, totally satisfied by those answered. At the, at the start of chapter 42, he says, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. And Job says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, there's a lot going on in that passage. I'll go come back in a minute to think more about it. Uh, but first, let me ask you, as a reader of Job, or a listener to this story, are you satisfied with God's answer to Job? Really? Are you? I think, the, I, think I can say, on first reading, you're probably not, because I wasn't when I read it. <laughs> are we satisfied with this answer? Because the question is, you're saying, Lord, why do I suffer? And the, the answer is, you're too ignorant and weak to ask that question. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, Seems to lack a certain something, you know, like an actual answer. (laughs) Um, But yet, this is supposed to be the most clear and direct answer to the problem of suffering that is provided in the Bible. So what's going on here? Why is Job satisfied? Why does he even feel the need to repent when he hears this from God? So for us to get into the right headspace to answer that, I think we need to remember Job is probably not describing a real event, like a real historical event that happened, you know, a conversation between Job and God. It's a dramatic book. It's a philosophical book. um, And the point of it is not to record this conversation and for us to go, well, who's right? But to get us as readers and listeners of Job to think about... Well, who am I and what, how would I respond and what's happening to me when I experience suffering, what kind of questions and answers am I looking for and the point of this I think is to break through the usual patterns of thinking that we have so that the problem of suffering and, and around it will appear different to us and what God's answer does in Job, it's, I think it's supposed to make us question whether our own understanding of the world and God and ourselves is sufficient to allow us to seek ultimate answers to spiritual questions, do we need to know more And also, whether or not what we actually need is intellectual answers to this problem. What kind of answer are we actually looking for to the problem of suffering? And what the book of Job does is it contrasts, I think, two approaches to the problem of suffering and evil in the world. So it contrasts the approach of Job and the approach of his friends. So Job's way is really a way that embraces mystery and questioning of the world. And the way of his friends is about a way of certainty and looking for you know, easy answers. So for instance, when Job is faced with his suffering, he laments. He says, this is bad. This is where I am. And what do his friends do when they're faced with his suffering? Instead of lamenting with him, they try to explain to him why he is suffering. Saying that suffering isn't bad because you deserve it. Explanation done. Secondly, as Job goes through suffering, we can see he questions and he probes the situations, except this is not a simple thing, this is complex, my relationship with God, what I've done, my life, my motivations, all the things that I'm going through are complex, it's difficult to understand. But what do his friends do? Well, they accept suffering is easy and will say it's the will of God, it's a simple thing to explain, no mystery there. Finally, in his suffering, Job looks for sympathy, he looks for people to be silent, to be present with him in suffering and to offer the comfort of being with him, sitting with him, without talking about it, just being in in present with him. But we see, of course, his friends just talk endlessly, accusing him, trying to force him to agree with them. And so you can see these two ways are very different of approaching suffering. We might say that Job is actually experiential or experience-focused in his way of dealing with suffering, and his friends are intellectual in the way they deal with suffering. So Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, his friends, they want to explain suffering so they can understand it in their heads. They can put it over there. I'm distant from it. It's a problem that's been solved. Job actually wants to journey through suffering in order to understand it and to experience what it means to know about it. And in the end, we see the book actually awards Job the prize of being the one that God agrees with in his approach. So it says in the last chapter, After the Lord had said these things to Job, so after he finishes questioning him, he says to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. And then he asks Job to to do a sacrifice so these friends can be forgiven because they need to be. So Job is vindicated by God because he doesn't accept the answers, the easy answers that his friends provide. And he sincerely and devotedly sought a real encounter with God. Uh, He sought a relationship and a connection with God himself through his suffering, despite his suffering and because of his suffering. And so the conclusion, I think, of Job is that suffering, the problem of suffering in some way, is a different kind of problem than the kind that can be solved by a group of men sitting around talking about philosophy. It's a different kind of problem. In my first sermon, I said, the book of Job asks us two big questions to to grapple with. Why do we suffer? And who is God? These are huge questions, aren't they? Very difficult, but very important. They shape our whole view of life. And Job's answer to these questions, the final answer, is actually that both of those questions are beyond our comprehension. They are beyond our ability to talk them through and come to a simple answer about But, crucially, they are not beyond our ability to experience. It is possible to know the answer to these questions by experiencing the world and experiencing God. Even if the answers that might describe that experience are not, we can't actually put them into words and explain them into language. Job says, the universe and God are deeper mysteries than we can know. Suffering and God are too. And I believe that Job is meant to challenge us about our own confidence as we read it, about our ability to understand and to master the world. You know, our temptation to be like Job's friends and to have an answer for everything, even an answer for suffering, and to be able to control how we experience it then. That's a natural tendency for us. And I think today we actually have a bigger problem with that than Job's friends did because, you know, for one thing, our scientific knowledge is so much greater than it was um, of the writer of the book of Job. You know, so if you read through these big questions that God asks Job about time and space and living things, we would actually probably be tempted to say, well, I do know the answer to that question, or I could find it out. You know, or that the questions are scientifically inaccurate anyway. So there is actually, we know, no storehouse up in the sky where snow is kept before it falls down. That's one of God's questions, you know, to Job. And our modern vision of the universe is so much bigger than the writers of the Old Testament in our scientific understanding. Perhaps we say it is possible for us to find all the answers to the secrets of nature. Perhaps we are also strong enough to overcome the chaos of nature too. Behemoth and Leviathan, you know, elephants are nearly going extinct um, because of us. You know, and we can make the world the way we want it to be through our technology. Maybe we do have the power. But I think the point that, of this book is not the amount of our knowledge, but the capacity we have to know certain types of things. Um, and I think that God's questions to Job are still valid for us, because they point us towards the need for an endless kind of reframing of the levels of our knowledge about, and our place in the universe. Um, the more we know, the more we should know how little that we know. I think Job is pointing out towards that. Um, God might ask us different questions than Joe, but the point would be the same. I've been watching a few videos on YouTube recently looking at cosmological questions and astrophysics and the like, and I think that I've sort of thought God might ask us the sort of things, you know, like, well, do you know what happened before the Big Bang? You know, tell me if you're so smart. Um, can you enter into a black hole and return? You know, if you're so strong, show me that you can do that. Well, no one can do that. Um... You know, I understand that because of the nature of the speed of light and the expansion of the universe, we're only ever going to be able to see a very small portion of the universe in which we live. Most of it is just too far away for us ever to see or even, or ever to visit. So there are mysteries out there that we will never, ever know because we are too limited in our perspective. Um, and that's what Job is saying. We are not God. We are human. And we need to recognize the limits of our perspective. Um, And when it comes to suffering, it says this is the same problem. There's another way to deal with it than intellectual mastery of the problem. So why is Job satisfied with God's answer to him? Because perhaps he realises that he does have a a limited perspective from what he really is. But also perhaps on a deeper level, he's satisfied in his experience of life because he's realised that his suffering has actually stripped away from him Everything that was separating him from a real encounter with God. That was how he got to this point of actually hearing from God, was through his suffering. So this experience he has is stripped away from him all the possessions that he had, all the supports of his life, all these things that made Job believe that he was strong. And it's taken away from him also the easy answers and the theology that he had that made him believe that he understood what the world was about and what God was like. And so through his suffering, because of it, he's had an encounter with God that was real. Maybe you have too. So the problem of suffering that we started with, it's an intellectual problem that we have. And when we have answers to it, which there are people who have wrestled with this and some people say there isn't an answer. Um, When we do that, though, we are trying to make the universe and make God fit a picture that we have in our head or our understanding. Um, But the question of suffering, I think, in Job is, more whether we're actually going to be willing to face the world and God as they really are, not as we imagine them to be. Um, Because one of the things that suffering does is it actually makes us face up to reality and the world. You can't ignore it anymore. And And it makes us question perhaps the little idols of God that we've made in our head and our understanding of how he works. Because it's very easy for us, if we're comfortable, as it was for Job's friends, to go on talking and talking as though we really understand who God is. We understand... The ultimate reality and source of everything in existence the eternal almighty almighty infinite creator of everything the beginning and end of all things i got it (laughs) i understand that Um, i think if we do feel like that perhaps it's we should take a step back and answer the question a bit or two about sort of the limits of the knowledge that we have about things that are even right in front of us you know do we understand as god says even the world in which we live the universe is full of mysteries job says including the mystery of suffering and why it is here. So I could keep going, but I think you get the point. God makes the point very, very clearly in this book. Job's story, I think, is about making the argument that the answer to the problem of suffering comes through experiencing suffering. Okay? The answer to the problem of suffering comes through suffering, through going through it and coming out on the other side through seeking our encounter with God in it and being satisfied with nothing less than God himself. And on the other side of all that, Job says, we find a deeper knowledge and a deeper blessing than we'd ever experienced on the other side of suffering, before we've gone through it. And I think this is how the story of Job finishes in the way that it does. So you may know that um, after God answers Job, and Job sort of says, yeah, you're right, um, God actually brings Job back and restores him to the life that he had before, even more. So He gives him back his health. He gives him back more wealth than he had before, and He gives him a new family. And it's it's so over the top that it's like a parody of a happy ending. Um, so it says, you know, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had fourteen thousand sheep, six thousand camels, a thousand yoke of oxen, and a thousand donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Keren, Hapak. Nowhere in all the land were they found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so Job died, an old man and full of years. Good for him. (laughs) He's been through enough. It's a good, satisfying getting for him. but again, when you read it, like so much in Job, it sort of can strike us as a bit off. Like, what's, what's being said here? Is it saying, is, oh, it's okay for God to put you through suffering as long as on the end you get lots of great stuff and it's okay? You know, is that the answer? All right. Um, does it make up for all the pain you went through? And, you know, what about Job's old family? People always ask, you know, they still died, you know. They're not coming back, you know. But, uh, so I don't think there's an I don't think it's providing an answer. I think that you know, we focus on that. We're getting sucked back in trying to read the story as a theological um, meaning. But it's a story. It's a wisdom book. It's getting us to think. And I think what the ending of Job really is saying is actually providing a picture of that there is this experience of finding meaning and finding grace and finding something good on the other side of suffering. Perhaps something even better than was before. Particularly, it's interesting that Job's three daughters are mentioned by name, and they're given their names, and the names that they have are to do with aspects of being beautiful. Um, And I think the point is now to say, well, look, through this, Job's life, we say, has a sweetness and a beauty now that it didn't have before. Because perhaps now his relationship with God is not based on his wealth. It's not based on the things that he thinks he deserves or that he's made for himself. Perhaps he knows now that everything that he has comes from God's grace, and he, he, he... He's more thankful now. So perhaps there's more on the other side of suffering, Job says. And I also started this series then by pointing out that Job is actually a symbolic uh, character, really. Um, he's a kind of an exaggeration of the normal human life to the extreme degree in order to help us to see our own lives more clearly. And so Job is everyone, I said. It's, he's us, he's me, he's you. Because all of us actually have this experience um, in some way. All of us one day are going to lose everything that we have. One day we're going to come to the point where we have to give up everything that we own. Where We're going to lose our health, we're going to lose our relationships and in the end our life. That's just the human destiny. And we we will have to embrace suffering or allow it um, and at last go through death. Whether we're old and full of years as Job was or not, it'll come to us. So the question is, what is on the other side of that when you go through that experience? Well, the point of the book of Job is to say that this life we have in all its experiences, good and bad, it's actually an invitation to know God and to experience God's grace and goodness and his love. And for some reason, it says, which is is still hidden from us or it's hard to get to the bottom of, suffering is one of the necessary mysteries and experiences of the universe through which we experience God's love in a way that we might not otherwise. Now that's not an intellectual answer, it's an experience answer. But there are other intellectual answers that Christians give to explain suffering and why we suffer, because there are different types of suffering, aren't there? And we might be able to give some answers to that. Sometimes we suffer for things that are absurd or meaningless, it just happens. Sometimes we suffer because of the bad intentions of ourselves and other people, there's an evil behind it. We suffer because of our own mistakes, or because the world is a corrupt place where sin has got a hold. Um, you know, we suffer because, in the end, perhaps God has given us the freedom to walk away from Him and to do things that lead us to suffer, and He'll make other people suffer too. That's the price of freedom. So there are these answers that we come up with, but if we took away all those things, if we just if that if that wasn't relevant. It seems, I think, perhaps, just from the way the world is, that suffering would probably still exist in some way or there'd be some experience like that because it seems to have a deeper purpose between us and God. It's, and that, you know, that's a hard thing to say, that actually suffering is built into the universe, but it's hard to accept um, perhaps that in order to know God and to experience God fully, we may have to suffer. It's hard to say. Perhaps the answer to the question of why we suffer is partly to answer the question, who is God, or to learn the real answer to that question. They're tied together. I think that's what Job is saying. Um, I think this this, this question of suffering, though, is a mystery, however, that Jesus sheds some more light on for us. Because it seems that God actually allows himself to suffer too in the creation of the universe and leading it. That God in Jesus takes on human suffering and the experience that it brings this problem that everyone has and he actually goes through suffering with us on our behalf to change also our sufferings into something that does have meaning and does have a purpose that we can discern because and this is what the cross of Jesus means I think without the cross we would find it hard to experience the answer to the problem of suffering world, to experience it And that the experience that God seems to want us to have is that on the other side of the mystery of suffering in this world and creation is an ultimately satisfying experience of God's love and his grace and his glory. As Paul says in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Somehow, it says, Paul says, that suffering is part of God bringing us into his glory, which won't compare to the suffering that we've had. Suffering is part of the way in which the creation is set free from itself and to know God. And I think this is why we should finish our series on Job with, again, a reflection on the cross of Jesus. Um, And we're moving forward next week into our series on the cross. You can go to the next slide, thanks. Um, Because the cross of Jesus is the ultimate symbol of human suffering and also the symbol of suffering as a pathway to understand and experience God's presence. Because on the cross we see God himself and humanity meet in suffering the Son of God, as a, son of, as a human being, in order to bring the grace, the love and the glory of God into our world in a new way, the world that suffers, waiting for God's power. Um, and we see Jesus on the cross. He is like Job. He had to go through this experience of being stripped away of everything that he has, all these natural things, even of his life, in order to enter into the experience of the presence of God and to experience connection with his Father on our behalf. Um, And it seems like this is a sort of mystery of the universe. On some level, it's only some kind of suffering or purifying or trial that we go through that human beings are able to pass through from our normal life into the life of God. So suffering is a mystery for us, but it's something that we need to learn more about. Suffering is not the end, though, of course. It's not the purpose of our life. It's not the meaning of our life to suffer. We're not made to suffer. We're made for glory. We're made to know God. And so as we look at Jesus on the cross, we realise this is what God has made us for, to know him as he really is and to experience him, to know, that, to know him as Jesus has revealed him to us. And, and as his disciples told the world, we saw Jesus on the cross. And what they said is, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. This is the word to us as we suffer, waiting to see that light and that glory. So let's take leave of Job now. Leave him where he was and move on. Think more about the cross. Let's, let me pray as we think about that. Lord, we live in a world where we experience suffering and those around us do too. Suffering that can seem too great to understand or so that could be ever be an answer. And we pray that we would experience an answer that satisfies us to the problem of suffering, a revelation of your presence, of your love and, and connection to us. And we acknowledge that we are not capable of understanding this world um, or of uh, questioning it and asking, and bringing it to justice. We pray that you would. And we pray that through this experience of creation, waiting for, for glory, that you would bring us to know you more deeply. And we pray that if we are suffering now and those we know are, they would know the comfort of your presence and that Christ would be walking with us. And we pray this in his name. Amen.